Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, my name is Winston. I am usually the worship pastor here, but today I'm taking over. I'm the senior pastor. Just kidding. Um, so uh, I, I want to start out my message today uh, by, um, I mean, telling you something that I think we all know, we all really relate to, but it would be helpful if I had like a show of hands, you know? So how many of you, by a show of hands, uh, have ever thought about eternity so deeply that it made you cry? Okay, hold on. I was expecting a lot more hands. Uh, than that because like the rest of my message kind of depends on uh, all hands being raised. So how many cry about eternity? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Everybody, everybody gets this. We all understand. Good, we're in it together. Um, So I would really do this when I was in middle school. Um, It was like, it would happen like right before bed. I, like, I don't know, I, like, if I'm not thinking about homework I didn't do, I'm thinking about eternity, I, I was weird. Um, so right before bed, I, uh, I, I start thinking about eternity and how long it is. And so, uh, you know, as a middle schooler, I'm just like lying in bed, I'm like, okay, I'm in middle school now, it's gonna be like forever until I'm 30. And then like 60 is like double that. Gosh, this is gonna—it's gonna be forever. And then, and then I don't know. Like, how long am I gonna live? Like, when am I gonna die? Like, maybe down 70, 80, 90? I don't know. With all this like good Louisiana gumbo, my mom's been making me. It's probably not gonna be that long. So, uh, but like, I'm a—I was a Christian. I really loved Jesus back then and now. Um, and I would think, okay, so I believed in heaven, like after I die, I would go into heaven, and so I would think, okay, so I die, but I'm not like unconscious in heaven. Like I'm still aware of everything around me. I still exist for a thousand years, and then like a million years like a billion years. And the thing about eternity is because there's no end to it, give me any number of years and we haven't yet scratched the surface of being in eternity. And so you guys all know, because we all have gone through this before, the ro- you know how the room starts to spin a little bit at that point? Yes. No, it's just me. Um, <laughs> so literally, this would happen. Like, I don't know if there's like doctors in the room who can tell me what's wrong with me. Uh, I would really appreciate it. But literally, this would actually happen. Like, I would think so deeply about eternity that it would like, my brain couldn't go there. It would overwhelm me. And the room <laughs> sometimes would spin. And I would cry and fall asleep just because I was so overwhelmed. So, it would, so thinking about eternity would either do that to me or it would do something else. I would get right to the point that we all know, the one like right before the room spins, you know. Um, I would get right there, and then I would actually get kind of inspired. I would like feel boldness, because here's why. Like I, I thought, okay, if, have you ever seen like the example where they like stretch a rope across the room, and that's like the timeline of eternity? And then they tie a little like red string or something that you can hardly see, and they say, this is your life in comparison to eternity, right? So I would kind of think, okay, if, if this is my little life, but all of this is me being in the presence of Jesus with him forever, why am I so worried about all the stuff here? Why don't I go for it? Why don't I just tell people I believe in Jesus and, and, and just do the things that he tells me and I'll sell everything and, and I don't, I'm just gonna be sold out for Jesus because eternity, that's where I'm gonna spend most of my life. Why am I so worried about this? And so it made me really bold. And so as the bold middle schooler that I was, I would begin to daydream at this moment. I'm still in bed, almost going to sleep, but I would just begin to daydream about uh, what that would look like, what me being extra super duper bold in my life would look like. And so um, I imagined lunchtime. So lunchtime at school, we would all have lunch, but then you'd eat lunch real fast because we had this really, actually when I think about it, it was like this awesome courtyard area that we had, picnic tables everywhere, it was all covered, but if you wanted a little sun, we had this nice wooden deck and like, um, uh, like a field of grass, it was like kind of nice to hang out with your friends you know, after lunch. And so, um, so right after lunch, um, I envisioned myself walking up to one of the picnic tables 
and standing up on one of the picnic tables. And you know, middle schoolers, they're all sinners, you know. And so I would share the gospel (laughs) to all the middle schoolers in my school and I would get them to believe in Jesus and everybody would clap and it would be wonderful and revival would break out in Lake Charles and then the United States of America and all across the world and I would get the girl and, and it was amazing. And so I'm bold, I go to sleep that night and I wake up into reality of the next day and I'm like, okay, I think I can do this. Like eternity is gonna be so long, I'm gonna be with Jesus for so long, I can't be afraid anymore. I have to do it, I have to go for it. And so wake up, go to school, go to lunch, and then I eat lunch and I walk outside into the courtyard and there's the picnic table that I saw in my daydream. And I'm like, okay, here it is, I'm gonna do it. And so I walk over to the picnic table and I put my foot up on the seat, like I'm about, to, I'm about to stand up on the table, but then I have this like really deep, like theological kind of thought, you know? I, like I'm about to step on the, like onto the table and I think math class is gonna be so awkward after this if I do this. <laughs> so, okay, I'm here, math class is gonna be awkward, so, but anyway, boldly, I tie my shoe, and I check my watch, and then I head off to my friends and pretend like none of this has ever happened. It was never my plan in the first place to ever get up on the table, and let's just go on like life is normal. And I think, (laughs) I think there is this tension in our lives between wanting to be the Christian that, like the bold, fearless Christian that we see in Acts and we want to be like, but then there's the tension of the picnic table moments in life. I don't know if you've ever lost an argument in your head before. I don't. But then all of a sudden, when I get into reality, it's a very different picture. When I have picnic table moments in my life where God is asking me to be bold, I never back down, I always do it. But then in real life, reality hits and you realize how awkward math class is gonna be if you go for it. So what do we do with the tension between these two things of wanting to be who God has called us to be, fearless and bold, but then the reality of life and how it keeps us from it sometimes. And so today, we're gonna be in... Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And what I think we're gonna see is that humanity has not changed much over the years. People were like that then, just like we're like this now, where we have the tension of what we should do, what I think we would stand up for, versus the reality of reality and how often it causes us not to do anything. And so we're going to be in, uh, like I said, John chapter 18. This is going to be verse 28, and uh, I'll read it for you here. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So um, in our college group, we've been going through this book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you haven't read it, it's actually a really wonderful book. Uh, It's a little deep. You got to read it slow, uh, but it's very, very valuable. And one of the things that they teach in this book uh, is how to read the Bible uh, exegetically with proper exegesis. So what exegesis is, is basically... um, Um, it's kind of like context. You've maybe heard that word before, but context is kind of this idea of like, okay, this is the verse I want to understand, so I'm going to read the context, all the verses around it, to get me a better picture of what this verse means. Um, Exodus takes it a little bit further because when we read scripture, we are actually reading words that were written by certain people to certain people in a certain time And oftentimes when we take our 2023 Winston or insert your name there, uh, American, and we lay that on top of scripture, often we come, uh, like we, if we read scripture through our own American eyes and don't try to understand what the original author meant 
to, and what the original reader heard, it's really easy to get off in our understanding of scripture. So it's really, really, really important to do a little bit of research, get proper context so you, we're reading the Bible with good exegesis. So I had uh, a little bit too much time to read with proper exegesis this week, and so I have some pictures of what my office looked like uh, on the screen behind me. Um, I kind of beautiful mind this whole um, <laughs> chapter today. I just followed every single rabbit hole possible just so that I could get a really good understanding of what we're talking about today. Uh, you laughed, and that's was, that was good, because I laughed too, I, otherwise I wouldn't have taken the pictures. Um, this, <laughs> I know this is crazy. But, um, but what we're gonna do, what I would like to do before we jump into this scripture, um, is, uh, is kind of look at the context first. But let, let me kind of show you like my problem a little bit when I read this first verse, because there's a lot of questions that come up right away. So then they, who is that? This is verse 28. Then they, who is that? I don't know. Jesus, I know him. To the house of Caiaphas. Who's that guy? To the governor's head. They have a governor and he has headquarters. It was early morning. Why does that matter? I don't understand. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why not? So that they would not be defiled. What is defiled? How does going into somebody's house make you defiled? But, uh, but they didn't do that. They didn't want to get defiled so they could eat the Passover. I'm like, I thought Jesus just ate the Passover last night with his disciples. Have they not eaten it yet? So you see my dilemma. I have a lot of questions, thus all the markers and stuff. Um, so what I would really like to do before we jump into this text is I'm actually going to uh, try to set the stage as best I can uh, because what I think, if I can, if I can um, pull you into the mind of these characters and what they're thinking, I think what we're about to read is going to come um, alive just a little bit more. And so uh, right out of the gate, something I, I want you to, I want to try to get you into the head, uh, the way that one of the characters, his name is Pilate, he is the governor over uh, this area. Um, I want to try to get you into his mind and what he might have been thinking in this situation we're about to read. The other person that I want you to get into the head of, I want you to think like they think, are these high priests, the elders and the teachers of the law. And I think if, that, if we can kind of understand the, where the way that they are thinking, the scripture is going to come alive a little bit more today. And so uh, one other character that we're going to see here is, of course, Jesus. And uh, one thing I really need you to understand about Jesus and his heart through this moment is we see last week that he has surrendered his life over to these people who were uh, arresting him unjustly that he is not fighting it, he is not pushing back. Um, there's this beautiful prophetic language of Jesus going like a lamb to the slaughter. Quiet, not fighting it, not trying to get out of it because this is the point all along that Jesus would be a sacrifice to cover our sins to make us right with God. So Jesus is going along with this. This has been the plan all along, and he's not fighting it. So are you with me still? Yeah. Good, thank you. Uh, so we are going to get into the high priests now. So this is the first character that I really want you to kind of get into their mind to start seeing the situation that they might be seeing it. So high priests, elders, teachers, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, these are all kind of, let's just use all of these terms interchangeably for the sake of simplicity. These guys teach the law. The law, you have it too, it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is called the Torah. These are the laws that God has commanded Moses way back in the day that this is how you guys are going to be pleasing to me. This is how I want you to act as a nation. This is all very sacred. There's uh, laws about washing and purification and there's even laws about you must celebrate. You must have parties and this is how you're gonna do it. This is how I need you to do that thing. And so the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the high priests, think of this as like uh, a fence, okay? So here's the law. If you cross this line, you're breaking the law. And according to our history, when we've broken the law, God does not like that. So let's not do it. Let's not break the law. 
It does not make God happy. We want to make God happy. We love him. Um, so I'm going to build a fence here. And uh, I don't know if you have kids or if you were ever a child. What happens when someone draws a line and says, don't cross it? What do you do? Cross it. Cross it. <laughs> so a great idea for a high priest or maybe you as a parent, uh, my dad definitely did this, um, was if this is the fence, this is the fence that I make and tell you about, right? So like when I was a kid, I couldn't go in the road next to our house because traffic, I might get hit. But there was a ditch right here that I loved to play in. And unfortunately for me, there was a fence, a literal fence here that my dad said, don't cross the fence. But every time I'd cross the fence, the ditch was on the other side, like crawfish and bugs and mud and all the fun little boy things that you like to do. But when I would cross the fence, I would get in trouble. But when I crossed the fence, there was actually nothing wrong with that. The thing he was keeping me from was the road, the actual law, the real danger, right? And so uh, what the high priest would do is they would, um, uh, I think in like 70 AD, they kind of compiled it into actually written works uh, because between here and here is just oral tradition, how we execute this law. It's uh, around 70 AD, they, somebody wrote it down after the temple was destroyed. It's called the Mishnah. It's basically the, uh, all the extra steps uh, how to execute this law prof- properly, and there's like traditions and stuff in there too, but we kind of get a better idea of what this fence is. When you cross this fence, you're not breaking this law, but you're getting really close, and it's not okay. In walks Jesus. Jesus, because he is God and understands this fence, it's okay for him to cross this fence. Just like now me as an adult, when I cross the fence into the ditch, I understand the threat of the road. I'm not going to get anywhere close to the road. But this fence doesn't really apply to us or anyone. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and you're a high priest and you're, you're teaching the people to obey God's law, in walks somebody that is extremely likable. Jesus has a huge following, a huge crowd, and then all of a sudden he's messing with this fence. And so you have a few conversations with Jesus and he schools you at your own game. He knows this way better than you do and it's so frustrating. It wouldn't be frustrating if it was just one guy. It's frustrating because he now has thousands of followers. Thousands of followers messing with this fence, threatening this fence and all of our culture and tradition is out the window. Not to mention, God could get mad again. So Jesus is not okay with me. On top of that, he does miracles. He does miracles like I can't get ahead with this guy. He's likable, everybody loves him, he's way smarter than me, and he has really cool tricks. (laughs) It's so frustrating. So do you see the frustration that they might have with Jesus? And so at this point, um, uh, Jesus is kind of three years into his ministry and nothing is really slowing down. The crowds are growing. um, People are really liking him. And now, uh, and maybe earlier, but now specifically, his followers are calling him Messiah. Now this is a huge problem if you're a high priest. And here's why. Uh, If you remember back kind of like, I think it's in Matthew early chapters somewhere where Jesus is going to be dedicated to the temple and they meet someone called Simeon. Simeon is full of the Holy Ghost um, and he says that he is a prayerful man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he sees Jesus and he's like, you're the one to bring that. So this is based on a prophecy in Isaiah 40, uh, talking about Messiah. It says, uh, this is 41 through 2. It says, comfort, comfort my people. This is a prophecy from long ago, way before Jesus' time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for. Messiah was coming to bring peace to the entire nation. 
At this time though, if you're a high priest, what's the thing that's causing unrest in your nation? It's Rome. Rome has moved in. They have uh, not let you do this as well as you wanted to, your law. They are ruthless, they are terrifying, and they are unpredictable. Jesus, with all of his followers, and they are now claiming that he is Messiah, expecting that he would be peace, the only way that a Messiah could bring peace was getting rid of the thing that's not bringing peace, Rome. So now I can kind of see what everybody's about to do. Jesus has thousands of followers. They're gonna take Rome. They are about to try to take Rome. Oh my goodness. Because just a few weeks, or not a week, a few days ago, openly all of his followers has welcomed him into Jerusalem with palm branches and cloaks and he's like walking in on a donkey and everybody's like, this is our guy, he's here to save us. If you're a high priest, you're like, okay, Rome is really powerful. You and all your fishermen buddies don't look like the fighting warrior type and you're, I think you're actually gonna try this because you're, you're saying you're Messiah, you're the one to conquer Rome. And if you try to kill Rome and you lose, our heads roll. It's our life that's on the line. If you try this trick, if you are so full uh, you know, of yourself thinking that you are the true son of God and you're gonna overtake Rome, it's trouble for all of us. Say goodbye to this, say goodbye to our nation as a whole. We have to get rid of this guy now, now because uh, uh, Caiaphas actually earlier in 18 has said that we need to get rid of this guy expediently because it's good for one to die for all of the people, which is a beautiful prophecy, but he didn't know it. <laughs> it's better that one person die than all of us as he is gonna try to take over Rome. And so you can see um, they, they also try to do this in secret. So why would the high priest try to get rid of Jesus in secret? Because of all of his followers all of his followers. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Do you think the group of 5,000 people was like, after they ate, they're like, I don't know about this Jesus guy. He's okay. No, they're in. They, they're like, they love this guy. So he has thousands of followers. And um, and something else that I think you need to know uh, about this, this time and what's going on as a high priest is this is Passover. So Passover is like the mega, uber-duber, super awesome celebration that lasts a week. And the law says that man, uh, every man, and, and maybe even a family can come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And what, every, what, what, what uh, surrounds Passover, or Passover surrounded by, I don't know how to say that, uh, is basically a, a Passover lamb. You sacrifice a lamb, and if you remember the story back in Exodus, you sacrifice a lamb, you paint the doorpost, and the, the angel of death passes over. This is what they are celebrating now. It's a command that God has made that they celebrate it now. And so everybody's in this place. Josephus, he's a historian, he talks about 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD happened during Passover. And between 70 AD and 30 AD, when what we're talking about now is about 40 years, I'm not expecting a huge explosion in population between 40 years. So what we know about what Josephus says here might be kind of true about what we're talking about. And what he talks about, what he says, is that on Passover in 70 AD, 270,000 lambs were slaughtered that day. One lamb can either represent anywhere between 10 and 20 people. Do the math, how many people are in Jerusalem right now? This place is full. This place is full and Jesus has been traveling all over, getting all these followers. So if he's gonna take Rome, this is the time to do it because all of his followers are in one place. They're calling him Messiah, let's get rid of him. And so they're looking to do this quietly. They're looking to do this uh, right now in walks Judas. Hey, I don't think this guy is actually gonna take over Rome like I thought. Uh, you guys don't need to know that. I just, I know where he's gonna be. Um, 
it, it's not what I thought it was. So I'll know where he is, just give me some money and, and we'll be kind of done with this because I'm, I'm not into him anymore. And so they take him, like we read last week, they have this secret sort of counsel, again, secret because they don't want Jesus' followers to know. And at this council, everybody is like throwing accusations and weird testimonies about what Jesus either did or didn't do, but none of them are really agreeing with each other. So they can't really find anything to, to, to like really prove that Jesus is doing anything wrong. But they're so frustrated because he's messing with the fence and he's a threat, but they just can't really pin him on anything until Caiaphas, the high priest, says, so tell us, are you the son of God or not? And in this culture, um, uh, like, like it would be today, like, like anything that my dad has is mine, and anything that I have is my dad. So it's almost equal, okay? If I say that I am my father's son, I am in essence my father too. And so Caiaphas says, Jesus, are you the son of God or not? And Jesus says, you've said it. Well, that wasn't saying no, he tears his robes and says, blasphemy, finally we've got you for something. And he stirs the crowd up. They're like, yeah, blasphemy. And according to this, if you're blasphemous, we stone you, we kill you. But then they have a thought. Caiaphas is a smart guy, I think. He thinks, okay, but if we kill him, then all of his followers are against us. If we kill him. But what Jesus' followers and we have in common is we hate Rome. We do not like this guy. So what if we convince Rome to kill him and then after he's dead, as the high priest, we can console all of his followers. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, he was really convincing, but he's gone now. Let's come back to this fence. Let's get out of this area, come to this side of the fence so we're back as it was before. Got it? That's where they're at, I think. That's what they're thinking. And so, um, so they bring Jesus to Pilate, who is the governor over this area, and they say, uh, blasphemy probably wouldn't matter to you. So in Luke, it records a few uh, accusations that they bring to Caiaphas. One, he's stirring up the people. You want it calm, don't you? You're governing this whole area. You don't want us stirred up. He's stirring up the people. He is not paying tribute to Caesar, a flat out lie. And he claims to be Christ, a king. I don't think Tiberius Caesar, your boss, is gonna like another king in his kingdom. And so this is where we pick up here in verse 29. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusations do you bring against this man? Here's all the accusations I think you would really care about. And so, so that was the mind of the high priest. Let me get you into the mind a little bit of Pilate. So Pilate is a governor over all of these people. And um, because I am not a governor, uh, and I am not, uh, <laughs> uh, I've never been in law enforcement or anything, I, I thought that you know, all these crowds and all this festival going on, you naturally think of Country Jam, right? <laughs> So this is just like Country Jam. So, uh, but I really did. I called one of my sheriff's office buddies to like try to kind of maybe get a similar picture of what Pilate might be concerned with. Because the thing is, is Pilate doesn't live here. Where he's at now, he doesn't live here. He lives about 70 miles away in a place called Caesarea because why would you want to be with and around the people you're governing? Gross. So he doesn't live there. But because everybody for this week has traveled to this one spot, he moves temporarily to be where the action is. Should anything show up, he has power to uh, get rid of it, right? And so I was calling my sheriff's office buddy, I'm like, hey, I'm, doing, I'm preaching a message. He goes, oh, awesome, I need your help, okay? What is it like being a police officer at, um, at Country Jam? He goes, what? <laughs> like, it'll make sense later, I promise. It'll all work together. And so basically, I kind of explained what I was thinking, like help me kind of understand what Pilate's like because I'm never in those situations. And so he's saying, okay, so if I'm at Country Jam, I'm usually on my four-wheeler and I'm like on a hill so I can see everything. But sometimes we won't even stop little fights here and there. We are waiting for something big to happen because we really need to be attentive to the big things that could go wrong. Apparently, a few years ago, there was a riot or something at Country Jam and they were flipping cars. Like, 
Stuff can get bad quick if there's a bunch of excited people all in one spot. So he's like, dude, if I'm on my four-wheeler and someone comes up to me and is like, hey, this guy stole my beer. He stole my beer. He won't give it back. He's looking at me funny. Can you believe this guy do something? What are you doing? You're on your four-wheeler and you go, because I have to be available for something serious should it take place. And so I kind of think there might be something with this uh, kind of mind frame with Pilate. Because the place is electric, there's tons of people there, all of a sudden these high priests come forward and say, uh, this guy says he's a king and um, he's been stirring people up and he doesn't even pay taxes or whatever. And Pilate's like, okay, I don't... I'm waiting for cars to be in, or chariots, I don't know what they had, uh, to be flipped over. Like, I, can I not deal with this right now because the pressure is on? And so, um, verse 30, um, let me see, yeah. Uh, so verse 30, um, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we have not delivered him over to you? Like, even though it didn't sound serious apparently to you, we're telling the truth, you've got to, because they know that he's about to overthrow Rome, or they think, you've got to listen to this guy. So Pilate, oh, lost my place. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. It doesn't matter, it's not a big deal. I need to be available for the threat of something serious. And so then the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. And then Pilate's like, what? Death? Okay, all of a sudden this has gotten a little bit more serious and we can tell by verse 32, the verse right after, that it said this was to fulfill the word that Jesus spoke, had spoken about to show what kind of death he was going to die. In chapter 12, we see that Jesus is talking about being lifted up, speaking of what kind of death he was going to die. If you are stoned to death, you are not lifted up. If you're crucified, you are lifted up. And so we can sort of imply that when they say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they're saying it is not lawful for us as Jews to crucify anyone. So now all of a sudden they are asking for Pilate to kill this guy and he's like, hold on, what is going on? Something is not lining up. And so... Um, verse 33, it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters. He goes, okay, I'll give this the time of the day. And again, he called Jesus and said to him, so are you the king of the Jews? Because out of all the accusations they brought against you, that's really the only one that I kind of care about. If you're trying to think of like, start some kind of revolt or, or establish your kingdom here and now, it's not gonna work. Just, I, I need to hear it now. What, are you gonna try to take over? <laughs> And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? So this really matters, Pilate. Are you asking me if I am a king who's about to overthrow you? Or are you asking me if I am the Messiah, the king of these people who have, who's come to bring peace? Because it really matters who's asking this question. And so Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Like, why would I care about your little messianic kingdom coming to bring peace to this nation? I don't care about that. But here's what's off to me. All of your people have brought you to me with really pitiful accusations against you and they want to kill you. What aren't you telling me? What's going on? Something is really off here. What have you done? Be honest. Tell me the truth. So verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And here he's about to make a really great point as to why he's not interested in taking over Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, much less in your presence. But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... I would have been handed over in the garden. I have thousands of people at my disposal. They all really like me. If we wanted to do this, we could, and we'd be fighting. Verse 37, so Pilate said to him, so you are a king, because you said you had a kingdom, and kings have kingdoms, 
Explain to me about this kingdom. What's really going on? So Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And it's for this purpose that I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. My kingdom, he says, is different from what you think it is. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice because I am the king of truth. And people who live by truth are people in my kingdom. It's not a kingdom of the world, it's a kingdom of truth. And Pilate says, maybe he's still thinking about a worldly kingdom or something and he's trying to understand, now where is truth located? What is truth? What are you talking about? Or maybe he kind of is intrigued, maybe there's a deeper conversation going on here and he's intrigued of like, Man, truth is hard to come by. What is that really? It's kind of unclear though. But after he said this, he went back outside and uh, told the Jews, he says, I find no guilt in him. Now, I think what Pilate realizes though in this moment, I find no guilt in him. There's really no reason for me to kill this guy. But here's the pickle that I think Pilate is in. If he lets Jesus go, all of a sudden, this semi-symbiotic relationship that this Roman governor has with these high priests is broken a little bit. Because if you're, of the, you're the governor, you don't have to govern right there because these high priests are kind of keeping all the people in check because of the law and all the fences. So they're kind of doing their job for you. So you really don't wanna make them upset and you don't want to look weak like a pushover just to do something unjust just because they're asking you to do it. You also don't want to kill Jesus. Um, or sorry, uh, I think I got those a little mixed up. You don't want to release Jesus back to them because they would disrespect you. But you also don't want to kill Jesus because if you kill Jesus, one, you look like a pushover because you just did what they asked you to do. You look weak as a leader. And two, Jesus has thousands of followers that might turn on you. That would be bad, especially now at Passover when this place is packed. This could get bloody really quick. So Pilate makes a really wise decision, I think. He realizes he's stuck. He can't win with either decision. So he says, I remember that you guys have some sort of a custom about releasing like somebody to you, um, bring out the worst guy. I didn't mean to look at you, sorry. <laughs> bring out the worst guy, the murderer, Barabbas. Bring him out. Hopefully he'll murder again. Bring him out. Let's, I'm gonna let you decide because I can't, if I choose, I lose either way. So making you decide between these two guys washes my hands of the responsibility of making either decision. If you guys choose this guy and word gets back to my boss, that looks great on me. These guys put me in a really weird situation, so I made them choose. Guess who these crazy people chose? The murderer, not the innocent guy. I need a raise, man. It is not easy governing these people. Come on. But if they choose Jesus, they get what they want to eat anyway. No skin off your back. You can let them keep being crazy. No problem. And so we know the story. They choose Barabbas. The Pharisees get what they want. Jesus is killed immediately because he threatens to kill everyone by taking over Rome. Pilate gets what he wants because he is no longer in a sticky situation of having to make a difficult decision. And that's where we close the book and we can close our eyes and pray and let you go home. <laughs> I wish, man, I wish reading the Bible ended at proper exegesis, at proper context and really understanding history. But this is the living word of God. Now we, we, we uh, do what's called... Um, it's, it's a broader term, but hermeneutics. This is where we let the word speak to us. Because the thing about this is that this text was written to people back then and it meant something to them. Because I think, and hopefully I did a good job telling the story, you're in my, the mind of Pilate, you're in the mind of the Pharisees, you can kind of see what's going on. This spoke something to them back then and they applied it to their lives. Now we've done the work of understanding it, and so now it's our turn to apply it to ours.
I don't want to relate to the bad guys. I don't want to see myself in Pilate. Ugh. I do not want to see myself in the high priests. My friends, I do. I do. I don't want to look at this, but I must. (laughs) So in Pilate, here's where I see myself in Pilate. When I look at Pilate, I see my middle school self. I have no reason to kill an innocent man, Pilate thinks. But making that decision could go wrong. It could be awkward. It could be awful. It could be uncomfortable. Doing the right thing in this situation is really difficult. So I'm going to do it later. I'm going to get myself out of it. Now, is standing on a picnic table telling people the gospel, is that what God wants from all of us? I don't think so. That's not my point. But I think there are moments in your life where God has asked you something to do, and because you're his creation, you knew it. There was something in you where you knew God was speaking to you, and you said, it might be uncomfortable in math class after this. I have to deal with making this decision of bold faith after this, so I'm gonna wash my hands of it. I won't take a risk, and I'll think about it tomorrow. I see myself in Pilate. Because if I stand up and do what's right, if I obey God now, math class will be awkward. If I change like I know I've wanted to and become the spiritual leader of my home that God has been asking me to do, what are my kids gonna think that all of a sudden I'm inconsistent? I've been one way for so long and they've trusted that. I'm gonna do it later or tomorrow or there's always a good reason not to do the thing that you feel God's saying do. What if I pray over this meal in public? I'm getting sweaty just thinking about praying over a meal in public. People are gonna look at me. What are they gonna think? Are they gonna come over and talk to me and tell me I shouldn't be a Christian or whatever? Ugh, I wanna do that. If my coworkers find out that I believe in Christ, Dot, dot, dot. If I pray for this person right now in the middle of the grocery store like I feel God's asking me to do, it's uncomfortable, it's so awkward, maybe I'll not do it. So pilots like me and maybe like you often don't take risks and we often love obeying God tomorrow. Maybe you see yourself in that. Maybe you see yourself in the high priests. Here's where I see myself in the high priest. I have a heart for God's word. I have a heart for building fences to help me keep his word. But then, I think dealing with sinners is probably somebody else's job. Loving people that make me uncomfortable, that's probably for someone else. But the difficult thing about a high priest and the way that we see the word is we cannot stop at behavior management and building fences to obey God and ignore the unlovable people in our lives. It does not work that way. But all too often we're content to read this and do nothing out here. And for some reason... As a high priest, people really aren't interested in the gospel story that I share with them. So I think it's probably their fault. It wasn't me. This is the good news. This is the gospel. If you don't agree with this, going to hell. Sorry. It's probably your fault for not listening to this. But follow me. If we think that people are so sinful now, and that's why they can't hear the gospel... Maybe. What about when they were sinful back then and open crucifixions were okay? Do you think there were any less wicked back then? What about now? And back then when they were really wicked, the early church spread like wildfire all over the place. What's changed? Why doesn't it do that now? 
in my life and in my communities. Might I suggest to you that it's not the people who don't hear the word that are the problem. There's something about the way we're living our life and sharing the gospel that is off. Because the message we have is the hope of the world and the world isn't interested, but it was. What's different now? You love God, but loving the unlovable is really difficult because they make you uncomfortable. Or maybe they know the Bible more than you do. And here is the heartbreaking thing about both pilot mindsets and high priest mindsets is that Jesus doesn't fight for himself in those picnic table moments where you know you should do something. In the same way that he didn't argue for Pilate saving him, or fighting against the high priest for, hey, this is a bad idea, you guys don't understand. Jesus doesn't convince you in these moments where you want to boldly obey him why you should do so. Instead, what I think happens is these uncomfortable situations in our life where we want to do something, but something is keeping us from it. I think it is an invitation from God Come in, be bold, surrender your life. Because the thing is, is Jesus asks for nothing but our whole life. That's it. Total surrender to him. Moments of feeling uncomfortable when I want to obey God, when I want to live the full Christian life, and you feel uncomfortable, that's supernatural. You're not unique in that. It's an invitation from God to say, where does your loyalty lie? With your comfort or with me? Now here's something I don't want you to hear from me. I do not want you to feel guilty. Guilt is like a rear view mirror looking at all the Christianity stuff that you've never done and you thought you, wish you should be or something. But I want you to feel, if anything, is conviction. Conviction is different in that it is now and it is forward. Conviction, if you let it sit on your heart a little bit, I think it does a wonderful job of showing um, us what Jesus is inviting us to be fixed in our life. What has rubbed you the wrong way as I've spoken to you today? Maybe that's an invitation from God to address a way of thinking, a way of acting, a way of being, a mind frame that you've had for all too long that he's inviting you into healing and to change. No more waiting for the ideal conditions in life like they are in our imaginations that we're gonna be so bold when the conditions are right, the conditions are never right to follow Jesus. Never right. Jesus didn't want followers to follow him only when the situation was just right, but he requires our whole life of you, total surrender and nothing in between. What would our lives look like as Christians if we embraced the picnic moments, the picnic table decisions of our life to do the thing that we feel God is calling us to do despite it being uncomfortable and awkward in life and we follow Jesus through it anyway? So my question for you today is where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself maybe more in pilot, in abdicating responsibility to something else or someone else or you always have a good reason not to do the thing that you feel like God is calling you to do? Are you like the high priests maybe? Where you have like, like the scripture is, is so valuable to you that you've accidentally built a few fences that require you not to deal with the dirty people in your life. Maybe a little bit of both. Um, actually, let's, let's go ahead and we'll just bow our heads. And I think what I, what I want to do is just kind of take some time of reflection, just a few minutes here. Um, and if you are on the prayer team, I'd love it if you would come up now and just be available. Um, but what I want you to do is just kind of close your eyes um, and we're just going to reflect for a moment. Because um, this is a work that I really want God to do in you. I don't want to convince or explain anything more. Um, 
And so that's what we're gonna do. The Holy Spirit, we just, uh, we know you're here, but Lord, we uh, ask you to speak to us, God, as we think. And so at, with your eyes closed, I'm just gonna ask you a few questions and uh, sort of take inventory of your heart. Notice what comes up, what's brought up in your heart. What should you do? I think for some of us, uh, maybe there's old dreams of what God has called us to do that uh, maybe because of the complexity of life now, they've, they're dead and they're gone, but they still um, bring us alive because maybe this is something God is, is still inviting me into. So maybe let those dreams wake up again. Those big, bold steps of faith. Invite God back into those things. Maybe uh, as you think of you know, Pilate or the high priests, what's the, what's the thing in you? What keeps you from living your life wholeheartedly for Christ, unashamed and unembarrassed? What surfaces? Just notice that. And maybe something has, uh, as it surfaces, just uh, acknowledge that maybe conviction is an invitation from God to work on that area of your life. Remember it, hold on to it. What is God saying to you? What is he convicting you of? And Maybe for some of you, uh, as you've thought about this, you see flat out disobedience. God has asked you to do something and you simply didn't. Maybe there's some time of turning, repenting. There's something beautiful about Jesus in this story we just read is that Jesus knew what his people were going to do to him and he died for them anyway. You are no different He knows that you're going to struggle to obey him. He understands how uncomfortable and awkward being obedient to God is and he died for you anyway. Do not let guilt and judgment bog down your heart. Know that our God is a God of forgiveness and acceptance and second chances times infinity. but all he requires of you is your whole life. Are you going to be surrendered to him? Are you going to take the risks where he asks you to take the risks? So let me just uh, pray for us as we uh, close. Lord, we are uh, so thankful that you are a God of second chances. You're a God of love. Jesus, you have died for us, making a way into relationship with you, God, but we don't live this Christian life perfectly. So Lord, I just ask for um, just this like supreme awareness almost that as we go out and be the church today, that we would recognize or be able to identify these little picnic table moments of decision in our life where you're inviting us to do something or maybe even just in the small things, to obey you, to surrender our life to you. You're so good, God. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much.